is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Unity, President Biden in Brussels today, meeting with leaders of other NATO countries to discuss the war in Ukraine. The president talking about unity in the face of aggression by Vladimir Putin. The single most important thing is for us to stay unified and the world continue to focus on what a brute this guy is and all the innocent people's lives are being lost and ruined. The president says there will be more sanctions hit against Russia and more humanitarian aid to Ukraine. We'll go in depth into the Western response to the war. The White House reportedly has put together a team to look into the possibilities of a nuclear or chemical attack on Ukraine, and we will head back to Ukraine to talk to a man in Kyiv whose family was dealing with covid when the war started, medicine suddenly became hard to find. Los Angeles is shrinking, not landwise, still huge, but lots of people left the city and other big cities across the country during the height of the pandemic. We'll look into why. Actor Tim Robbins from Shawshank Redemption, lots of other big movies, going to be with us to talk theater, acting, and politics. He started a live theater group, and uh, they were shut down right as COVID started to happen, and they are now back up and performing in L.A. We start, though, with President Biden in Brussels and the NATO response to the war. With us is Robert Sanders, retired Navy JAG Corps chap- uh, captain and chair of national security at the Henry Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences at the University of New Haven. Thanks for being with us. So uh, the president is saying, uh, and NATO is actually saying, that uh, we are prepared to do something if Russia were to employ chemical or biological warfare, and I suppose certainly if they used tactical nuclear weapons, what would that something be? Well, there's a range of activities that could happen from uh, boots on the ground to uh, asymmetric strikes to strikes with uh, weapons, uh, standoff weapons uh, like cruise missiles um, to to take them out. Um, The idea of uh, NATO, U.S., uh, our allies, boots on the ground, of course, is the last the last ditch reserve. Um, And that would be the one thing that NATO and the United States in particular would also try to avoid. But at the end of the day, uh, I, I've said this in the past, it's, it's how do you take your poison here? It's poison at the beginning, poison in the middle, or poison at the end. It's all ugly. It's all nasty. And uh, if you want to stop a threat like this, you may have to actually meet the threat with the force that the threat presents. It's a delicate balance for obvious reasons. There is some worry that with things going so bad for Vladimir Putin that he's going to think that he has to do one of these things because it's the uh, it's the animal backed into a corner kind of scenario. Well, it is. Um, you know, I, I, my, my doctor's in law policy. I won't do the psychology issue, um, animal analysis of him. But the, the aspect of national security, you have a political end state that you're trying to achieve and one of the mechanisms you can use to achieve it is the m in what we call dimefil d-i-m-e-f-i-l diplomacy information military economics finance intelligence and law legal law enforcement those are the instruments of national power those are what nations use in order to affect their power and policies around the world putin's political end state 
is uh, rebuilding what had been the Soviet empire and rebuilding that buffer that used to exist between that Western NATO and his Eastern communist Russia. Uh, he, he couldn't get it through the D. Uh, he, he had no chance through the I. Uh, economically, he was not strong enough. Financially, he was not strong enough. His intelligence apparatus, uh, KGB days are over. Uh, and law, he's not China in the South China Sea. He resorted to the M. And his resort, retort to the M, has put us where we are today. Um, what do we do with that? We have that same set of dying fill as potential ways to respond. Uh, we started with the E and the F. We supported the Ukrainian M. And I can't tell you exactly what's next, but all those other dynamics, including the diplomacy one, uh, which is happening right now with President Biden in Europe, are all on the table. But let me ask you something. Didn't a former occupant of the White House once draw a red line in the sand uh, that if crossed, and I'm talking, I think, about uh, Syria, that if uh, if that line were crossed, the U.S. would react, the line was crossed, and we didn't? Right. Uh, a, a, a bad scenario. Uh, I wish we had reacted. Uh, I, I would have liked to have seen lots of dead Russians and Syrian uh, troops at that point in that time, uh, but we did, it didn't happen. So what are we doing now? Well, we're doing a lot of that I, the information stuff is being put out. So the rest of the world has a clearer picture of what this looks like. Uh, we're doing a lot of the, the other I, gathering the information intel to pass on to our allies and folks who could act. We're not telling everybody in the world what every aspect of every red line is. So that if in fact, we have an agreement with our NATO allies on what red lines look like that we can keep secret, um, that the Russians can't figure out, and the Russians move into that area. We can react in a number of ways without being having to telegraph what we do or without having foreshadowed what we're going to do. Robert Sanders there, retired Navy JAG Corps captain and chair of national security, Henry Lee College Criminal Justice at the uh, University of New Haven. We have been hearing every day from people in Ukraine who are, have been sharing their experiences dealing with the horrors of war. Ivan lives in Kiev with his mom and stepdad and family. And just before the war started, his stepdad was in the hospital there with COVID and sent home. This while his mom was having a hard time getting over her own case of the virus. Ivan is with us now. Ivan, thank you for taking the time to be with us. I mean, talk about one problem after another. I mean, COVID on top of that, a, a war with uh, with Russia. Tell us how you and your family have been coping. Hi, Mike, Charles. Uh, happy to be here. Um, that's a good question. Yes, uh, one event after another. Uh, it's been tough. Uh, indeed, it's been 30 days of this uh, war, this aggression, and um, I think at this point of time, some of us, um, you know, kind of uh, developed a, it's not correct to connect with this, but like a Stockholm syndrome, like you're getting used to the horror. It's, it's, it's horrible to say, but mm. you're somehow getting used to it, right? Because it became part of our daily life. And I think it's slightly maybe easier for us to speak about this right now, even like comparing to three weeks ago when we were just in shock 
because nobody really expected to just wake up like exactly 30 days ago or like four weeks ago we woken up with you know missiles being sent over the city and you just you wake up from an explosion you don't understand what's going on and then you see on the news and the war started and you just don't believe in it that in this century in this time that something like this can happen and especially from the neighbors where um, like historically, uh, due to the us being part of the USSR, many of us have connections, like family connections, right? Like we are intertwined uh, as nations, even though we're different nations, we are intertwined. And then you get like things like this, and then you learn of what Russian thinks of us. And it's just like the lies that's being told on their part. Like, yeah. And um, it's tough uh, because... You know, we are in Kiev, like it depends on where you are in Ukraine, but uh, every day you you watch this horrific um, stories and footages from Mariupol or Kharkov of uh, bombing and, you know, children being killed and houses being shot at. It's like, and you don't know what's going to happen to you. And pretty much you go to sleep. Like, I will tell you how we sleep. Like, when you go to sleep, you... You, I have a, like an emergency bag next to me. I have a bottle of water. I have like what I have in my emergency bag. I have um, like my passport, some cash, uh, sneakers, <laughs> you know, to go buy granola bar, flashlight, knife, like, you know, things that you need in case, you know, you will be um, um, like bombed and you, you will not have time to uh, evacuate and you will be just left here like under, covered under ruins and then we have like emergency bags that um, you would take with yourself if you have to evacuate and you pretty much you go to bed packing and then you wake up happy that you are alive uh, and then you uh, unpack some of the things and then you go by it's it's a it's a real tragical story how most of people live nowadays how here old, those who how choose old, to say Ivan how, how curious how old are you 38 38. Okay. And what do you do? Uh, I work in IT. I'm, um, yeah, I'm, I'm leading global delivery, global development uh, in one of the companies. You were mentioning earlier how many people have connections, you know, to Russia. Is that the same with your family? I mean, do you have family and friends on the other side of this? Uh, I have some, I have some uh, family connections, but we've stopped talking to them since 2014. You know, when the actual uh, Russian aggression has started, it didn't just start it a month ago. It started eight years ago. Um, and they didn't believe as to what we were saying at that point of time. So our connections were lost. And we, I do have some of my Russian friends um, uh, in Russia. And some of them stayed there and they understand what's going on, but they are keeping silent. I do have a very good, I have very two good friends who are Russians and who've been living in Ukraine and who chose to leave Ukraine immediately because they didn't know how it will affect them. And they're right now staying in other countries and they're not returning to Russia. Uh, And then I do have some people um, in Russia, like they are not friends, they're like acquaintances and they don't believe as to what we're saying. So pretty much you don't talk to them. How do you think this is all going to (laughs) end? I hope uh, and pray that Ukraine is going to win. Your Russian friends, I just want to come back to that for a second. The ones who mm-hmm. are staying silent, uh, do you blame them for that? Or do you understand because 
bad things could happen to them? Or do you think everybody over there who can speak out should be speaking out because they're one of the few, apparently, that know what's actually going on? Uh, it's a tough question. Obviously, we as Ukrainians would like every single person who is able to stood up, stood up for their uh, opinion, because this is what we've done in Ukraine. This is now a third time that we're doing this. Um, now, the first two cases of our revolutions were interior, interior conflicts, right? But we always chose to stand up for our rights. Uh, now, um, like we don't see how this is happening in Russia and they pretty much um, they get used to the regime that they're living in. So it's their personal choice. Do I blame them? Well, it's their personal choice. Um, and yes, I would love them to stand up and, you know, um, pretty much say, like, go into the um, meetings, protests and saying stop to this. Uh, will this be effective? Yes. If this will be like a complete revolution, like you would have, uh, let's say, um, in France, uh, then, uh, yeah, it could work. Would that work in the real scenario that the regime that they're all being let's say, uh, brainwashed with, I don't know. Like, it's hard to say. I'm not living there. I've seen on the news just like what they saw about us. We saw a picture about them. Um, I do understand that they are brainwashed, but they are also fear. There's lots of fear as to what's going to happen to them because they do have a totalitarian regime. So I'm not there to blame or judge them. You know, Ivan, we, we started talking about the fact that as the war began, your family was dealing with, with COVID. And until the war began, the world was pretty much preoccupied <laughs> with COVID, and the, COVID yes. yeah, and, the, and the pandemic. Just briefly tell us, how did, how did you guys deal with, with that? And then when the war came along, uh, the, the sort of shock of that on top of having to deal with recuperating from COVID? Well, you know that human body gets used to activate their, you know, immense power to recuperate and uh, survive in the worst uh, scenarios. So I would tell you that nobody speaks of COVID here anymore. And uh, I, I, I know of extremely rare, rare cases where I heard of somebody getting sick with COVID. It sounds like we don't even hear of statistics, but obviously nobody is going to be able to pretty much, um, you know, get a COVID test right now. But uh, overall, you don't hear of people getting super sick uh, right now because they are probably scared and their, their bodies are uh, activated for survival mode right now. So, you know, uh, COVID is getting killed by our immune system, I would say, maybe. Um, but, uh, yeah, for me, it is um, like, yeah, we got COVID just before the war. And we uh, it was really hard in terms of like my stepdad was still feeling very, very sick. And it was hard for him to breathe because like 55 percent of his lungs were affected and he had a pneumonia and so on. So it's uh, it was hard. Um but we, we had to do what we had to do. You had to survive. Like, this is a case of survival. And uh, first days, we were like, okay, what do we have to pack? What do we need to buy? Where do we need to go? Uh, what can we do? You know, you're like, your, your brain is intensively working in a survival mode. Uh, and hence, I guess, your body is also working through, you know, um, getting quickly into shape. And how are mom and, and stepdad doing now? Uh, much better. I would say uh, COVID-wise, we forgot what COVID 
was and you know nobody speak of this post-covid syndrome like of us being tired and, and you know that the usual stuff that you have because uh, you're tired of the intense situation psychological that you're in and the deprived sleep that you have because just imagine when on average per day you would have from i don't know from like five to ten air sirens going off and you are just waiting and waiting for not knowing what's going to happen next. And then you hear an explosion and then you're like, okay, this is not next to me. So uh, you're focused on different things right now. Ivan, thank you for talking to us. Uh, our best to you there and the family. Ivan lives in Kiev with his mom, uh, stepdad, and the rest of the family. Ivan, thank you again. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So the White House reportedly has his team in place. It's looking into what to do in case Russia does use a nuclear bomb on Ukraine or uses chemical or biological weapons. New York Times says the team's also checking out possible scenarios if the war spreads to other countries. So how could these scenarios play out? John Turney is executive director of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. He's a former Massachusetts congressman who served in the House Intelligence Committee. John, thanks for being with us. Uh, It's almost hard to believe that we're even having this discussion about the possibility that Russia in the year 2022 would even think of using, I guess, a tactical smaller nuclear weapon and that we and our Western allies have to kind of come up with a strategy on how to deal with that possibility. It seems unbelievable and yet. Well, it, it is unbelievable in a sense. And, and perhaps one of the problems is that people have put it out of their minds for too long. And one of the reasons why we haven't been able to reduce the number of nuclear weapons to the extent that we all should have by, by this point in time. Nobody believed that any responsible person would come to a point where they would start making threats uh, and might meaningfully be willing to act on those threats. The biggest danger that people have seen in the last couple of decades have been the, the issue of miscalculation of a stake. Uh, and those two things still ride very heavily in this scenario. They're probably heightened by the fact that once somebody starts threatening uh, that they may use them and you're in the middle of a conflict where a fog of war could create any kind of situation, it heightens the chances for a mistake or miscalculation uh, to lead, and one act leads to another, and the escalation could get out of control. And I think that's everybody's concern. There's something that we talked about on the show here before about that idea of um, deterrence, how it used to be. You know, we're not going to get into a shooting war because we both got nukes, so nobody fired anybody, and just uh, let's all let cooler heads prevail. But Putin's kind of flipped it, and he's using it as a shield. He goes, I've got nukes, so I'm going to do what I want with Ukraine, and uh, you guys all sit in your borders because, again, I've got nukes. He's, he's changed the whole scenario here. Right. He's sort of blackmailing everybody, at least threatening that if they ratchet this up to a point where he feels that the sovereignty uh, of Russia is being threatened, uh, that uh, this existential threat might lead him to take that action. So, yeah, he's he's turned it around on that basis. It certainly has never been a deterrent from conventional wars. There's any number of conventional wars that have taken place regionally and, and locally in, in the last several decades on that. But uh, I think he's the first to, to use it in this sense, uh, and it should be disturbing to everybody that uh, somebody... Uh, that had between the United States and Russia, 93% of all the nuclear weapons in the world are, are controlled. And it should bother us a great deal that, that he would make this kind of a threat. I was listening earlier today to a uh, BBC report, and they were talking about 
How is it that they were talking about the U.K. in specific, that their intelligence community so got Vladimir Putin, who has been in power now, what, in one form or another, about 20 years, how they got him so wrong, how they they didn't understand what he was fully capable of clearly doing. So let me pose that same question to you. You were on the House Intelligence Committee, and, and you certainly know how uh, the intelligence community operates in this country. How did we, after 20 years of dealing with Vladimir Putin, we thought he wouldn't actually invade. We thought it was a bluff. Clearly it wasn't. Uh, we thought he wouldn't uh, bomb and, and, and pulverize cities. Clearly he has. Why didn't we anticipate what he's really like? Well, I'm not sure that we didn't anticipate what he was really like over the years. Um, you know, he's, he's been a changing item, I think, in many respects. And the situation uh, has changed, in, including COVID, which isolated him considerably. Uh, and I think has led to some changes in his attitude and his, his demeanor, as well as his, his conduct. But over the years, I don't think there was any mistaking, at least with the intelligence uh, that we've all seen, that he was a, a bad guy and a bad actor. Uh, but nobody thought that, that he would go to the extent of using a nuclear weapon or biochemical weapon of any sort. And, and we're still not sure that he would. No, but that but that's it. But that is exactly my, is but, enough of a problem. That, yeah, but that's exactly so my we, point, John. Yeah, that's, well, but my, my point is that nobody thought he would do a whole bunch of things that he's now doing. And we don't know yet. Hopefully he won't go that next step. But he's already done a whole bunch of stuff that people said, well, we don't think he's going to really do. He's a bad guy, but he's not that bad. But he is well, that because bad. I think you don't know somebody intimately. And you people know Putin intimately, even within his own country. His advisors are kept at arm's length a lot of times, too. So you'd use what you do know. Uh, and then you probably impose on it, rightly or wrongly, your understandings of what a rational person would do, because nobody had any inclination that he was irrational. Certainly hadn't been his conduct. He had always been a very calculated uh, individual looking out to protect his own regime and to protect his country in a heightened sense uh, that I think people put that on as, well, here's a guy that we don't like what he does. We don't think he's a good guy, but he has a shown, shown such signs of irrationality that he would ratchet it uh, to an extreme level and you can't read people's minds, but now we're seeing that whatever may have transpired, particularly in the last couple of years, has put him in the position where he's willing to do it and doing it. John Tierney, Executive Director, the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, former Massachusetts congressman, was on the House Intelligence Committee. Well, have you noticed fewer people out and about in L.A.? No. Uh, no, yeah, and I haven't either. But nonetheless. <laughs> but apparently. <laughs> but apparently. <laughs> you can't judge it uh, by traffic because, well, you know, it's still rough. But new Census Bureau data does show that the area has lost nearly 176,000 residents during the heart of the pandemic. That was from mid-2020 to about mid-2021. Now, that is the second largest exodus among metro areas in the country. L.A.'s not alone. Other big cities, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, losing people. Cost of living is a big reason. Also, it's easier to move now for a lot of people. Julie Bauke, president and chief career strategist the Bauke Group, is with us. Also, Anthony Giusti from the Bay Area, uh, recently moved to Houston, started his own home painting company. Anthony, to you first, why did you leave our great state of California? Hey, guys, how you doing? Well, I left the state just to um, start a company in Houston. Like you guys touched on, the cost of living was a little expensive. And just for a personal reason, I was ready to shake it up, start something new. 
But are you glad you left? I mean, was it just because you wanted to start a business or did you just find living in the Bay Area, which is not exactly the cheapest place on earth, <laughs> uh, just economically not, not feasible anymore? Well, you know, I think the, the median home price in the Bay Area is around $1.2 million. So just kind of looking at that and down the road, I thought it gets started in a place where it was a little bit cheaper. In Houston, I think the median home price is somewhere between 400000 and 225000 So there's a significant difference there. But um, furthermore, am I happy to leave? No. My, family, um, my family's in the Bay Area. My grandparents, my mom, my dad. Funny enough, my sister moved to L.A. from San Francisco, so maybe she was an outlier during the pandemic. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, you, you know, it, there's, it's bittersweet. There's pros and cons to everything. How long did you start having this in your mind before you actually decided to move? Because so many people are always talking about it, and we hear it. Look, I'm going to move to Texas. That's the thing, right? I'm moving to Texas, but they don't. But you did. I did. I did, and I moved to Houston and not Austin or Dallas. Um, I feel like Austin, amongst young people, you know, I'm 26. Yeah, it's always Austin. I feel like Austin's a very very popular destination. But the catalyst to my – I would say the, the pandemic was a catalyst to my thing. Things were a little crazy. Originally coming home from college, I wanted to do a five-year plan. You know, uh, five years, work in the city, um, learn, grow, spend time with my family, and then move on from there. But as we know, things got a little, a little crazy, and, uh, and work slowed down. So I had some more time to think and breathe, and I just decided to pull the trigger on the decision a little earlier than I originally anticipated. Okay, Anthony, hang in there. Uh, Julie, let's bring you into the discussion. So during the pandemic, of course, uh, lots of people who could and had the kinds of jobs that lent themselves to it worked from home. But did it also then make some people realize, ah, wait a minute, I could work and not live in that expensive city? Yeah, Anthony hits on a lot of the factors that really caused people to move. So we we had people saying, you know what, either the work has dried up, so now I have a chance to breathe and think, what do I really want in the rest of my life? And as a very forward-looking young guy, he said, you know, I'd like to be able to own a home someday. So there's there's that there's that that group of people. Then there are people who like you say worked inside of offices where the company either temporarily went to work from home, work from anywhere, or has said, yeah, we're going to that and not coming back. I know some people who moved when the company said you can work from anywhere, and now the company is saying, well, now we need you to come back in, and those people are saying, yeah, too bad, I already moved. And the job market is such that they can go out and find something else. You know, a really interesting stat I saw recently said that over half of the people in the workforce right now have said we are going to prioritize our health and wellness over work. So when you look at what that means, people look at what's the distance of my commute? You know, what kind of stress do I have in my life? Can I build a life for my family here that I want to? And Anthony hit on it perfectly. He said, you know, I did leave my family behind, but I had to make a call. And so we have that sector of the workforce as well. What's interesting is, you know, when you look at Austin, Phoenix, some of these towns at Dallas that are getting overrun by new people, that, that's going to have an end to it as well. There's going to become a point when it's not as affordable to live in these cities that people have moved to for affordability. So we're having some temporary redistribution. And, um, you know, like anything, it's not over. You know, it's going to it'll probably swing another way, you know, in our lifetime.
Is there enough momentum in the I want to work from where I want to work from crowd versus the bosses trying to haul people back in to keep it at least how it is right now? Or does everybody eventually have to come back? (laughs) No, absolutely not. What's very interesting is that the the stats of people who are currently doing a work from home, work from anywhere, a a, many, many, the majority of them have said, look, if I'm forced to come back to the office, I will quit. And when you're in a job market like we're in right now, they can do that. Let's now let's let's wind back to 2008 when we were in a recession. At that point, those a lot of those people would have had to stock it up and go back to work. So the the economy, the talent shortage that we're in, absolutely impacts people's willingness to take a risk and walk away and say, well, if I walk away and try something new, what's the worst thing that can happen? Doesn't go well, I go do something else. And so we're losing our fear about becoming more mobile in our careers. And another big piece of that is the Gen, the Gen Z and millennials look at work very differently. And as boomers move out of the market and move to retire, that attitude toward work is, becoming, is going to become much more prevalent. Anthony, uh, is there anything that would move you back to the Bay Area. Not that I'm trying to get you to move, but if you wanted to, is there something that free rent, free rent? Yeah. (laughs) Is there something that would get you to move back? Because to Julie's point, you know, with everybody moving to places like Texas and and elsewhere, eventually it's going to drive up prices there. So it may not become as expensive as the Bay Area, but it may be kind of on parity. Would anything move you back to either L.A. or you said your sister's here in L.A., maybe to L.A. instead of the Bay Area? Well, I love California. And especially I love San Francisco. It's a part of my blood. It's a part of who I am, my identity. But uh, just currently, I'm in Houston. And I've found found room to breathe and start my own company and have success in here. So for the time being, I'm just on that track. But in the far future, I would love to come back. It's where I'm from. You know, it's uh, Sanford. I went to San Francisco City College and won a national championship there. I went to high school at Marin Catholic in Marin County. I love that place. It's so beautiful. But just for the time being, I had to make a change. Anthony Juicy there from the Bay Area. Recently moved to Houston. Got that painting company. And uh, visit anytime, Anthony. And uh, Julie Bauke, President and Chief Career Strategist, the Bauke Group. Yeah, this is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Actor Tim Robbins. You know him from all kinds of movies. Shawshank Redemption, Mystic River. He also has a passion for live theater. Founded a theater group called The Actors Gang. And they were performing right here in L.A. in 2020 when, wouldn't you know it, COVID came along, shut down the entire production. Fast forward two years, the group finally back performing Can't Pay, Don't Pay at the Actors Gang Theater on Venice Boulevard in Culver City. And with us now, I promise you, is Tim Robbins. Tim, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So uh, we were saying before, uh, first of all, we want to make sure that people go and see the play. And so the play is called Can't Pay, Don't Pay. It is at the Actors Gang Theater. It is on Venice Boulevard in Culver City. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the play, because we were talking before uh, about how, you know, you pick material for what you perform in and other things in your life that tends to have messages, I think. Uh, what is the message of this play other than, of course, just laughter? Well, yes, that's the primary motive here, uh, as it is with all of the work that we do to ha- have a communication with our audience in a way that is fundamental and fun and uh, 
involves their imaginations and their spirits. Um, it's so great to be able to, to can congregate again. That has been such a joy over the past couple of weeks to do shows live and hear people joining together in laughter. The play for uh, is by this uh, Italian playwright named Dario Fo, who is a Nobel Prize winning play, uh, playwright. Uh, I met him uh, years ago in, in Milan and uh, got to know him and become friends with him. And he became somewhat of a mentor to me. He's always been an inspiration for me. When I was in college, I read a, a play he wrote that we produced uh, three years ago called Accidental Death of an Anarchist. And when I read it, I realized that I could write for the theater. It's where I got inspired to become a, a creator because what he was able to do was take a very serious subject and infuse humor with it so that anyone in the audience could find a way into the play. And it's the same thing with Can't Pay, Don't Pay. You know, I, I am of the belief that theater should be a meeting place. It shouldn't be a, a political rally. It shouldn't be all like-minded people in the same room. The whole point of theater is to create a forum where you have people with different opinions come in and be able to share emotions together. That's the whole purpose and function of theater and always has been. And so it's been great to be able to uh, open our doors again and to see a diversity of people coming in and sharing this experience. You think people also need a laugh after these last two years? And we mentioned before, I mean, you guys had tried to get this going. You were almost there. And then, of course, we know what happened two years ago. Yeah, we opened up and we were playing. We had gotten great reviews and we played for one week and then we had to shut it down. And so it was such a, you know, such a frustrating thing, a necessary thing at the time. And, you know, we've been we've been you know, there've been times when we could have opened in the past six months, but it seems so tenuous. And we just wanted to wait to make sure that we didn't, we, we not only could have a successful run, but also that we could open our doors to everyone. I think it's really important that, that there not be any kind of exclusive uh, nature in theater. One of the reasons we do a, a pay what you can performance always with our shows once a week. So the people, even if they're flat out busted they can still afford to see theater at the actors game and and that's a a great thing and and you and your company should be applauded for that uh you know we were, we were talking a little before behind your back <laughs> before you joined us that uh you know there are performers in hollywood and in new york and you know uh who shy away from ever discussing political issues uh you never know if they're republicans or democrats or what they care about because i guess they feel that uh, they don't want people to know they want their performances to speak for themselves or they're afraid of their uh, career. You've really never been one of those types. You have always been pretty open about your beliefs. Uh, you've always been uh, a political activist, uh, social activist as well. Did it ever worry you, though, that it would have an impact on your career as you were going forward? I think it's always a concern. Um, certainly, you know, when I came out against the Iraq war, I got warnings from people in the industry. Don't say anything. Don't do anything. And I, I feel that that um, I, I, whether it had an effect on my career, maybe it did. I don't know. I think the real question is, if I didn't do what was in my heart, would it have an effect on my life and on who I believe I am and and the way I live my life and on, and consequently on my children's lives? So, you know, I, I'd never, for me, it's always been 
the the celebration of a free living in a free country is being able to freely express yourself i think that has gotten less and less over particularly over the last two years i feel there's a a real um intimidating environment that doesn't allow for dissenting viewpoints and i'm never that never is healthy for democracy you think we hold on to that or do we just continue what we're doing now which is mostly shouting each other down at the first uh, whiff of oh you don't agree with me let's go that's the problem isn't it, it you know we're living in such a uh, divided country and uh, unfortunately i believe that's being encouraged uh, and there's no open dialogue i always think about the wa- the the water cooler conversation you know this is something that we haven't had for the past two years that random conversation that happens at work not necessarily with your inner circle or people that you're going to invite out to dinner but people that you work with that you're exposed to that might have a different opinion on on the way things are than you but yet you're exposed to it and you have to deal with it because it's a real person that's expressing this now that doesn't mean you have to be their best friend but you have to acknowledge that there are different points of view to eliminate the water cooler conversation and whether the water cooler is at work or whether that is where you go to have a drink after work or whether that's a, you know, a theater you go to or a concert hall or um, a bunch of people you play sports with. I play hockey with a bunch of guys on the weekends. I don't know their political beliefs. I, I still, I still accept them as who they are. That has been a, that in going into isolation and going into lockdown, all of that was taken from us. The ability to have a conversation, uh, an unfiltered conversation. Now what we're all in our little silos and we have our own opinions and we seek other people to, to validate our opinions. And that isn't necessarily uh, good for an open and free society either. You know, you used to do, I think, uh, a lot of college stuff, right? You would go around and do, I guess, lectures or or conversations, I suppose, is a better way of of putting it. But we've had comics on this show who have said that they're kind of, you know, skittish about doing that nowadays for the things that you were talking about. You know, the need to have sort of self-censorship or to be chastised by the students who used to be the most receptive to new ideas is that why you i think you've stopped doing that is that why um well it's 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 the the problem is this that that we we uh this the idea of canceling someone for an opinion is is for me it's the opposite of organizing an organizer in a movement seeks out a wide array of people you can't only seek out when you're building a movement or when you're when you're trying to change something in society. You a movement building is about finding coalition with people that might not necessarily agree with you on everything. But it's finding your common ground. And when the first step in in activism is to cancel those that disagree with you. For me that's the opposite of movement building. And so I I, I I understand why the comics are skittish. And again, this is not a healthy, free society if people are afraid to speak, particularly comics, because that's their whole point, isn't it? To push the envelope, to, to ask questions that might be uncomfortable. In a way, I heard, I saw this great documentary on George Carlin uh, that's not out yet, but a friend of mine made. And um one of the comics that's interviewed talks about 
how in the past philosophers were sought out and people would go to see them and have large discussions and it would be fill concert halls and stuff. Now it's comedians. Comedians have become our philosophers. And, and in a way, a philosopher isn't there to tell you what you want to hear. A philosopher is there to question your own worldview. And what, if you can question your worldview and still have the same worldview, then that has served a function. But if you, he questions your worldview and you attack that person, then that is, that's indicative of something. That's indicative of something that perhaps we all need to look at our own choices, our own selves, and what we've said and done. And perhaps maybe because we're human, we not, might not be right about everything. The sense of humility, the sense of, of, of you know, the, the people that I've admired most that have gotten into their older years and become mentors of mine are people that don't act as experts, but act as conduits for a higher knowledge, that the idea that they, they are not necessarily right about everything, that they're always still a student. They're always still questioning. Tim Robbins, thanks for talking to us. This has been great. My pleasure. I'm sorry I was late. I, I heard, I, heard the, <laughs> I, I had got, hadn't gotten the latest memo and I had 2.15, so I'm no worries. That's okay. And, and, and we're going to remind people the play, Can't Pay, Don't Pay. It's at the Actors Gang Theater on Venice Boulevard in Culver City. And I think it's 35 bucks a ticket. But as you said, there's one night a week where it's pay what you can, right? Yes. Thursday nights are pay what you can. And listen, if you have to come on Friday and you can't pay, just come, just <laughs> contact the box office. And we are work. open to all, that regardless of anything, we are open to all. We'll Gra see you there. Yeah, great Pleasure having. talking to you. Thanks. Tim Robbins with us on In-Depth. That's In-Depth for today. Back tomorrow.